Hello and welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a month-by-month look at the modern rock charts. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and we're going to kick things off with a song of mystery for the month. This one comes from a band that's hitting the modern rock charts for its third and final time. This song went to number 20 in November of 1992. let you know what that was at the end of the episode. In the meantime, let's talk November 1992. Joining me today is my special guest, Steve Michener. Hi, Steve. Hey, Will. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Oh, nice. Talking with you. Yeah. So, Steve, you were the bassist for Boston area bands, Volcano Sons and Dump Truck, and then I'm mostly familiar with you from the band Big Dipper. Cut to the chase. A band that I I believe you once described as being taller than Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we got in a lot of trouble for that, Will, and I don't want to relive those awful... That Southern tour after that was just just a nightmare. But yeah, we were were a tall band, and... um, Except for Jeff, the drummer. Of course, the drummer is always the shortest one in the band. But well, you know, I was curious because I I don't know anything. Was that real drama? I I heard that mentioned in a in an interview that I found. We completely made it up. Okay. We put it in a press release, and then of course, what we found out was that people like kind of outside the cities, like outside the big cities, or who'd know us, would just print anything that was in the press release. Gerard put in there one point that Je- Jeff had been in the Rolling Stones, and people asked us about that for years. So wow, nice. So I guess we're talking today about November 1992. Can we flash back? Do you remember what was going on back then? So I had left Big Dipper in 90 and uh, moved out to San Francisco immediately. I ended up playing in a couple bands, and I started taking classes to uh, eventually go to nursing school. And now I'm uh, coming to the end of my nursing career. Hopefully next year I'll retire. Oh, wow. I'm looking forward to my retirement. Yeah. Yeah, I'll bet. Touring so much, you know, you're constantly broke. And that's, you know, that was fine in my 20s. But when I got into my 30s, I was like, okay, well, this is starting to wear thin. I'd like to make a little money, have a little security and a little money. (laughs) Some hope of retiring someday. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And look what happened. I get to retire. Nice. Nice. Uh, Well, congratulations. So 1992, you said you had more or less quit listening to this kind of music at that point. Yeah, I think when friends would come through town, I'd go see the bands. Like I saw Yola Tango a lot and whoever they were playing with. Completely stopped listening to indie music or alternative music or whatever you want to call it. Although I was roommates with Dale Crover, so uh, I did get to hang out and see Nirvana a few times, which was fun. But as far as listening on the radio to like the modern rock stations, I was definitely not doing that. I kind of retreated into my little world. I was bitter as a bitter musician, Will. I was <laughs> burnt out, cynical. Sure, I get it. Well, maybe enough time has passed that you're ready to listen to these songs that you missed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, let's take a look at the charts, I guess. 
In November 1992, uh, the first half of the month, REM's song Drive is still topping the charts. But we've got U2 on the top 10 with their sixth straight single from Octung Baby, which is uh, pretty impressive. The the song in this case is Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses, and I think that was the final single from their album. They ran out of songs. There was only six (laughs) songs on the album. Yeah, not much more than that, yeah. But we got The Sundays at number two with uh, the song Love from their second album. We opened for The Sundays. They are not nice people. Oh, really? (laughs) We got the dirt. (laughs) (laughs) We had a bit of a run-in with them. Wow. It's a kind of an infamous Big Dipper story, but not really that interesting because... <laughs> but we we just seemed like we always like ran into like uh, English bands with an attitude because, you know, it'd be, they were a big deal over there. And NME tells them that they're the greatest band in the world that month. And then they come over here and they, um, yeah. they're yeah. in America. Yep. Nobody's heard of them and nobody's bought their albums. <laughs> <laughs> Did uh, anything ever end in fisticuffs? Was there ever a Big Dipper brawl? There was something that happened in Manchester with Gary. Like, I don't think that was the opening band. That was like the audience. Okay. Other bands, no. I mean, we were not fighters. We were like the nerdiest guys. You were lovers. Yeah. <laughs> you saw the album covers. We were not spoiling for a fight. Yeah. Back to the charts, I suppose. Uh, we got the Talking Heads are on the modern rock charts for their final time. It's Lifetime Piling Up, which was a, a new song they stuck on their Sand in the Vaseline compilation album. Nine Inch Nails are back after a lengthy absence with Happiness and Slavery. And um, on the pop charts, Whitney Houston's cover of I Will Always Love You began its 14-week run at number one. Wow. So that's that's kind of the stuff we're not going to be listening to. Uh, <laughs> let's see what we are going to listen to. The first new number one song of the month is by a band called 10,000 Maniacs. And mm-hmm. uh, we've, we've heard a song or two from them on the show before. They were formed in 1981 in New York. I think generally when people think of the band, they think of front woman Natalie Merchant. But... In fact, uh, the band existed before she joined, and the band continues to this day many, many years after she left the band in 1993. Really? Mm-hmm. So in 1992, 10,000 Maniacs released their fifth studio album titled Our Time in Eden. During the recording process, Natalie Merchant announced to the band that she was going to leave them in two years' time, which... <laughs> <laughs> that is a very odd thing to, to say. Yeah, it really is. It's a tough thing to leave a band with, I know. If somebody said that to me, I would be a, a little bit freaked out. Exactly, and I, I can't imagine how the band operated with what must have felt like a like a big countdown doomsday clock <laughs> kind of <laughs> hovering above them. Plenty you know, of time to find a replacement, though. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. I mean, that is that is the one nice thing about it. They had a, a big heads up. And she did keep that promise. You know, she was out of the band within two years. All right, so we're going to hear the first single off of the album. It's called These Are Days. Like I said, it was a number one modern rock hit for two weeks. It was co-written by Natalie Merchant and 10,000 Maniacs guitarist Robert Buck. Here it is. These Are Days. Yeah. 
I was a big fan of this band. I discovered them actually when Dump Truck opened for them in Atlanta on our first tour down there. And uh, we played together at the 688 Club. I was really taken by her voice. I just, I think she has a lovely, unique, somewhat precious voice, but it's, it's like so singular. It's that kind of voice you hear and you know exactly who it is. Yeah, I totally agree. Not to like call myself out here, but if I'm going to be honest, back when I was a teenager, there were not too many women fronted bands that I really was into and that I, you know, that really spoke to me. But 10,000 Maniacs was one of those few bands that, for whatever reason, like, I feel like they should have been too wimpy for my tastes. Right, uh, yeah. But, like, somehow I was always on board. Like, whatever song of theirs was on the radio, you know, <laughs> I, I always liked it. I was never sad to hear it. Yeah, it has a timeless sound. It doesn't sound dated. Like, I think some t- we'll get into maybe one or two of these other songs potentially sound a little dated. Yeah. But, yeah, I agree. Like, everything that they do sounds has her singing and so uh, I like I said uh, I'm on board <laughs> yeah yeah beautiful record I I, uh, I could listen to that uh, in fact I think I'm gonna go and listen to the the rest of the record when we're done here it's very autumnal yeah you know it really is they started out as a cover band actually so oh, yeah? when they did uh, peace train mm-hmm. I think that was a vestige of their earlier life and I really like that version yeah I like that version too Big Dipper had a song where we co-authored with Cat Stevens. The Younger Bums, is that the one? The Younger Bums, that's right. Yeah, we had we accidentally stole it, and um, then we had to credit him and get in touch with his publisher. And I don't know if it was Cat himself or Yousef who approved it, but luckily he gave us a go-ahead, and so we're we're splitting it. We're splitting our millions with him. Nice. <laughs> Maybe if uh, you know my millions of listeners go out and stream the Younger Bums, you'll be picking up some of those sweet royalty checks or whatever. Let's hope, Will. That mailbox money is very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you mentioned that Ten Thousand Maniacs are kind of somewhat in the same vein as REM, and yeah, I hear that, and I think that makes a lot of sense because trying to place Ten Thousand Maniacs into I don't know, the whole thing of what's going on in in the modern rock world. You know, Nirvana just popped up. Uh, (laughs) The grunge explosion is is beginning for real. Yeah, Um, it must have, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, this is very different than that type of music, and yet uh, everyone still kind of agreed at the time, like, this is alternative music, and this is still something we want to listen to, so. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny how it became alternative. It's, I mean, they started as an indie band, sure, Mm -hmm. but... There was very little edginess to them, but I guess, you know, it's a big tent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that's one thing I really like about modern rock of this era. It's not going to be as big of a tent in the following years. <laughs> <laughs> the tent is shrinking. Yeah, it really is. All right. Well, uh, this album, Our Time in Eden, it went gold pretty quickly, which means it sold half a million copies and eventually it went double platinum, but that took a while. And um, even though this was their last studio album, we are going to hear more from 10,000 Maniacs in the future because they've got a hit live album that's going to be coming down pretty soon. All right, well, let's keep moving on. We got uh, the next band. This is Paul Weller. I I assume you're familiar with Paul Weller? The Jam were just my favorite band. You know, like when I first started listening to music, alternative music, whatever, in high school, the Jammer right up there with The Clash and The Ramones. Mm-hmm. And 
Buzzcocks. Yeah. And Weller was a, a god to me, which makes it all the stranger that as soon as he left the jam, I stopped listening to anything he had to do. <laughs> you know what? Uh, we're in agreement, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. And we might not be right. Yeah, well, uh, I'm right. I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Paul Weller, he was a founding member of The Jam, a uh, you know UK punk band. And uh, I would say by some standards, the most successful of the early UK punk bands, because they sent four songs to number one in the UK. And yeah, there's no other UK punk band that did that. The Clash did it once, but not until 1991 with a reissue. The Sex Pistols didn't ever get to number one, although maybe they kind of did on a technicality. But um, maybe it would be fun to play a jam song in case we got some listeners who aren't familiar. I could probably pick one. Do you have a, a jam favorite? Not only is Going Underground my favorite jam song, but it's probably my favorite song. But okay. but I yeah. defer to the host. Yeah, I, you know what? I love Going Underground. I think that's a good choice. I was maybe going to go uh, down in the tube station at midnight, but... Um, they're both underground. <laughs> Very jammy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, let's hear it. Some people might get some pleasure out of hate me. I've enough for any of my fight. People might need some tension to relax me. I'm too busy dodging between the facts. You see, here's what you get. You've made your bed, you better lie in it. You choose your leaders and place your trust. As it lies, watch you down and their promises trust. All right, well, there it was, uh, <laughs> Going Underground. Right on. That's the best song in the world. Yeah, it's good. And then in 1982, 1983, sometime around there, Paul Weller leaves the jam and he forms a band called the Style Council. They were also quite successful in the UK, but I never want to listen to them. I do not like this band. Do not like them at all. Is that because you tried them and didn't like them, or are you bitter about the whole uh, the way he broke up the jam? Um, it's because I don't like them. Yeah. Uh, I <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's not what I want to listen to. It sounds awful to me, and it's it's like everything that I like about the jam is removed. Except Paul Weller's voice, which was yeah. probably the you know the weak point, the weak point in the jam. Sure, what's left over? That's the Style Council. Well, it's too bad because I mean, obviously, I mean, the guy had a tremendous amount of talent, and uh, but he was just drawn in this way, you know. And you got to respect someone who just says, "I can't do this anymore." If he doesn't believe in the a three man band type thing, and you could hear the jam expanding, kind of pushing at the edges on the last couple albums. Sure. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So let me just get it straight. So the Style Council then broke up, and this is Paul Weller solo? Yeah, Style Council lasted until 1989, then it was breakup, and then it was solo time. Actually, he's been very, very successful in the UK with his solo career. He's had six number one solo albums in the UK, including his most recent one from 2021. Like, he's still hitting number one in the UK. So The English are like that. They grab onto someone and they won't let them go. Yeah. And they're sentimental, I think, that way. They still have the guy from The Move playing uh, the Christmas song on TV every year. Oh, yeah. They love their Christmas songs. Wow, yeah. Yeah, they love the Christmas songs, too. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah so in, 19 <laughs> in 1992, Paul Weller released his first solo album called Paul Weller. 
And uh, we're going to hear a song called Uh-Huh, Oh Yeah. And it hit number 10 on the modern rock charts and number 18 in the UK. Here it is. A minute will fall asleep. My long, long shoes to bees. And all the dreams I had to dream were really something I'd make believe. Uh-huh, oh yeah. Uh-huh, oh yeah. Always there to confuse and fool ya. Uh-huh, oh yeah. Uh-huh, oh yeah. Always there to confuse and fool ya. Oh, yeah. Uh, what'd you think? Well, it's a catchy pop song. What was he aiming for there? I know the Style Council was trying to do, like, Soul and Motown. and But this is more, I don't know, I'm not a musicologist. Yeah, there were some touches in there that felt a little uh, soul. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. It's catchy enough. It's like, if you went and listened to the jam a bunch, and then you loved that, and then jumped right to here, I think it would be a disappointment. Yes. Um, But it seems good enough or fun enough to go like, oh, Paul Weller's back. Yeah, let's play him on the radio because we miss him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like, and you know, everyone goes to his shows, I'm sure, and they're just like praying that he's going to play a jam song or two, which I guess he finally started doing a little bit, but for years he didn't play anything. That's, uh, That's cold, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think I gave up on him necessarily musically and said, oh, I don't want to listen to this music. I think I was so bitter about the breakup of the jam that um, I was uh, not really willing to probably give him the chance that I would have. Yeah, I feel bad. I mean, but it's not really the kind of music that I would go out of my way to listen to anyway. So yeah, it's very personal for me to the jam breaking up and poor Bruce and... Oh, Rick, going on and they started a band or continued the band and played the songs of the jam with with somebody else. Oh, did they? Were they the new jam? They're called From the Jam. From the Jam, okay. People who saw it said that, you know, it was actually a good concert, but I don't know if it was just like the two of them and it was just no vocals. (laughs) I think they got another guitar. Wow, that would be something. Yeah, you know, so I guess two things I wanted to mention here. One of them is like, when I'm picturing Paul Weller at this period, I'm kind of picturing him as like, an old man trying to hang with the young hip kids and only semi succeeding, but he was only 34 at this point. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the weird thing when you you start a band and you're so young, you know, like it seems like he's been around for two generations at this point, but uh, yeah, he's still uh, significantly younger than, than me. (laughs) (laughs) He's still younger than me. (laughs) Yeah. I wrote down copious notes for the other songs, and the only thing I wrote down for this one was on my little note card was the jam. <laughs> yeah, not the jam. Not the jam. <laughs> uh, well, I, on that note, I, let's move on. This is not the jam. Let's, let's find something else. We're going to hear from a band called the Darling Buds. They were formed in Wales in 1986. And uh, they're apparently named after a novel, which in turn was named after a Shakespeare sonnet. The line, rough winds do shake the darling buds of May. They were led by Andrea Lewis, who I think just went by Andrea at the time. Or maybe Andrea. How would you say say that with a Welsh accent? 
<laughs> has some C's and Y's. And... Exactly. So what are the, the stupidest things that I found when I was looking up this band? Like Every article that mentions them, it says that the Darling Buds were considered to be part of the blonde movement, which basically means there's like a, a woman who is blonde who sings and then some guys <laughs> in the band. None of the bands seem to have much you know, in common musically, <laughs> but uh, you know, they had the same hair color, so it's a movement. In the van, we called that lazy musical journalism. Yeah, exactly. Because we had guitars, so we sounded like R.E.M. I was yeah. like, actually... We don't sound like R.E.M., but sure, whatever you need to do, yeah. yeah. But I guess what they lumped in with the primitives. Yes, absolutely. Primitives, definitely part of the blonde movement. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I mean, do you remember the bald movement? Those bands with those bald-headed singers? <laughs> oh, they all sounded exactly the same. Yeah. 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 Midnight Oil and Live. Presidents of the oh, yeah. uh, United States or something. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, do you know the Darling Buds? You, you said... You... I had never heard of this band before in my life. They definitely hit that sweet spot when I was not paying attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I missed them. So it was it was interesting to hear to hear this band and this song, which uh, has its charms. Yeah, I try to include on my show every band that's charted at least three or four times. Give them at least one appearance on the show. And uh, the Darling Buds... They hit the modern rock charts four times. This is their fourth and final appearance. So I thought, you know what? Might as well get them in there. Yeah. Let's see. 1992, the Darling Buds released their album Erotica, which I think is amazing because just a few weeks after that, Madonna released her album Erotica. Oh, yeah. I remember that. That's a good one. Yeah. They were the Erotica bands. <laughs> I wonder if they knew about it. If they were trying to to get some uh, record sales just based on listeners who didn't know any better. Right. Yeah. There have been worse ideas. <laughs> so we're going to hear the second single off this album. It's called Please Yourself. It hit number 22 on the modern rock charts. Here it is. It's a banger. I want to dislike it for some reason, <laughs> but uh, I'm having a hard time. I mean, the, if I was going to criticize it in any way, I would say that uh, there was a band around in the early 90s called Sonic Youth, and I think they had a huge influence on many bands, and I think they were probably a favorite band of uh, the Darling Buds because that opening guitar riff and the whole guitar sound, to me, has a Sonic Youth thing. Yeah, absolutely. I could totally see that being something they were into. But very poppy. I mean, it's a catchy song. I, I think if that song had been uh, on the car radio when I was driving around in 1992, I don't think I owned a car, but uh, I would have turned it up. Yeah, you know, I've listened to, I don't know, six or eight singles by the Darling Buds, and I think they're mostly pretty likable. They kind of veer between this kind of sound, which is, yeah, I'd maybe say it's like a more pop-oriented take on shoegaze-ish sort of thing. And um, sometimes they're more straight-up power-pop sounding. Sometimes they throw in a little bit of, like, dance rock 
vibe to it. But like, I know it's it's all pretty decent. I would have described them as like top shelf radio filler. So like <laughs> it's not reaching the level where it's like prime cuts where you're going to like run out and buy the album and get excited and get the band t-shirt, but totally serviceable, totally likable, happy to hear it on the radio. Yeah, it's ear candy. Yeah, and I feel this way about most of their songs I heard, so, you know. Yeah, I feel like I said I totally missed them. I think I missed the whole shoegaze thing. I saw My Bloody Valentine, but I actually like this better than My Bloody Valentine. I'm more of song-oriented rather than the, you know, the wall of noise stuff, so very pleasant, if not generic, noise pop. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, usually go into the history. I was wondering if they had a history after this or if they just kind of fell oh. apart. Yeah, after this album, you know, it was kind of the same old story. They didn't sell as well as they wanted to. They were frustrated by their lack of success. I think they had that same kind of thing where they got stuck in record company limbo. The company wasn't promoting them and maybe wouldn't let them go record a new album and they just were twiddling their thumbs with nothing to do. So they broke up sometime around 93 and they've reformed here and there. I think they might currently be back together and possibly could be working on some new material but there hasn't been like an actual studio album from them since erotica well i'm sure they're a big um, deal in wales yeah i hope so all right that takes us to our fourth and final band of the show we're gonna hear from the smashing pumpkins smashing pumpkins were formed in 1988 in chicago they were initially a trio lead singer billy corgan james eha and Darcy Retsky, and they had a drum machine. Hmm. And when they started playing together, it was what's been described as gloomy Cure-inspired rock. Shocking. Which, yeah, I mean, I can I can totally see that. That makes a lot of sense. But when they were convinced to get rid of the drum machine and bring in an actual drummer, they were joined by Jimmy Chamberlain, who is a, a very talented jazz-trained drummer. Oh, really. Yeah, their sound immediately changed and instantly took on a heavier feel. And um, not too much thereafter, they, they emerged as the Smashing Pumpkins as we know them. Their first album, Gish, came out in 1991, and it sold significantly better than expected. Hmm. And uh, here we are in 1992. They're between albums, but they recorded a song called Drown, and it was included on the singles original soundtrack i remember when that came out we talked about singles a few episodes back the soundtrack was kind of a big deal at least in terms of alerting people to the presence of certain Mm. grunge bands and and the seattle scene and all of that sort of thing yeah so the smashing pumpkins you know i i heard about them when siamese dream came out you know i got into them with their second album and we'll get there eventually down the road but reading articles and interviews and things from back in this time period, like 92 and 91, a lot of things I read describe them as, you know, shameless careerists and like indie rock sellouts. And there's like, there's a lot of animosity toward this band where people are seemingly pissed off at them for wanting to sell records. And I'm not really from that scene where selling out was like a really really big deal and could be career suicide potentially or like what whatever it is i don't really know but i can you speak to this at all like do you remember the smashing pumpkins like at the time and and well i was a little bit removed from it but i i do remember in this um just having a knee-jerk reaction to it which i think was going along with the hipster crowd which is like oh these guys suck 
They must be terrible. Because, yeah, they're, they're more popular than we really want them to be. <laughs> I was very jaded at that point. And so I, my opinion is not uh, valid. Your opinion, I think, was pretty typical of certain crowds back then. One of the articles that kept coming up when I was researching, apparently Steve Albini wrote this scathing article, uh, <laughs> not just about Smashing Pumpkins, but also about Liz Fair and Urge Overkill. She just like ripped them all new ones. Like it was horrendously mean. But the thing about it is like I'll read articles about Liz Fair and uh, okay. honestly, I'm not reading too many articles about Urge Overkill these days, but <laughs> I can imagine if I did, I don't think too many people are bringing up the Steve Albini article, but uh, like every time I read about the Smashing Pumpkins, there's always some mention about Steve Albini being mean to the Smashing Pumpkins. That does ring a bell, the Albini thing. And of course, you know, back then you had to choose sides with a band. And if Albini was on the other side, then who are we to argue with the great? <laughs> sure. Although, you know, I've also read him like tearing into the Pixies. He described them as like, I don't know, some shitty generic college band or something. <laughs> he's very intelligent, uh, but yeah, he's probably mellowed out. He's probably listening to Boz Skaggs now and <laughs> yeah. rethinking the pumpkins. Yeah, he's into 10,000 Maniacs these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to hear a song called Drown. This appeared on the single soundtrack in, an I think, an eight-and-a-half-minute version. There was some talk about releasing it as an official single in a you know a shorter cut, and apparently the record label decided to push an Alice in Chains song off the soundtrack instead. Which, of course, <laughs> Billy Corgan, being the outspoken person he is, he like went around to various interviews and, and talked shit, and you know kind of whined about how it should have been Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> but uh, there was a promo single released, and so that's why it did get some radio play, and that's what we're going to hear. It's, this is like the, the shortened four-and-a-half-minute version or whatever. So here it is, Drown. actually pretty cool at the risk of offending steve albini maybe they don't suck <laughs> but he shows real songcraft like that um opening riff is really cool i've learned from the internets that uh they do a drop d tuning on that which is probably gives it a little uniqueness and it has a lot of very um kind of i would call 60s psychedelic touches to it and you know they're also really using that big shifting dynamic thing like going from quiet to loud but in a way that feels very very different than the way that say nirvana or the pixies utilize that kind of thing sure yeah i mean i think that's a very well written song uh, vocals don't annoy me the lyrics are kind of dumb but um you know they're kind of high school poetry type stuff I'd give the lyric award to Natalie and the music award to the Smumpkins and guitar riff goes to the Darling Buds and uh, Paul Weller was in the jam. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. He gets the uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award. Lifetime. <laughs> yeah, November 92. We have a winner. Are you supposed to pick a winner? Uh, no. Okay. But, uh, I think we did. I think we gave it all the awards. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. I appreciate the uh, chance to go back and revisit a time when I wasn't really paying attention and um, kind of rethink some of my shallow opinions of some bands and remember the remember the good times and it was enlightening and eye-opening yeah well good it's fun for me too like i I told you that i'm like i started the show in an era before i was listening to music and a big reason why i started the show was just to discover some music that i missed out on so at least two of these songs i didn't know before i prepped for the show oh good i don't feel so out of it then yeah I know you You said you're not doing music so much anymore. Do you have anything you want to promote? Well, yeah, I'd like to send people to our Facebook page because I think we're trying to do something a little different over there. We're trying to kind of do like an oral history of the band. Starting a few years ago, we started um, doing these tour diaries that kind of, you know, and if you're not interested in the band, it at least gives you like a kind of a behind the scenes peek at what it was like to be you know low-level indie band who was touring at the time we've also started uh doing kind of like a oral history of our songs and talking about what we remember about them between the band members just kind of doing a a back and forth on uh, how the songs came about and some people seem to find that interesting so we keep doing it our only record that's in print right now is super cluster and that's available on merge records only for download it's a bargain. Three records. Yeah, otherwise, uh, I just, uh, I've been listening to a lot of music podcasts, including yours, and uh, really enjoying kind of catching up to what I missed out on. Yeah, well, um, I'm pushing Big Dipper on my show. We'll see. I'll, I will definitely be uh, throwing <laughs> three or four new fans your way. Well, I'll take them. Thank you, Steve, very much for coming on the show. I had a good time. Uh, very, very informative. Thank you. Thank you, too. <laughs> All right, well, I guess that's it. In case you were wondering, the song of mystery for the month was Mary's Danish with Leave It Alone. If you want to get a hold of me, you can contact me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. And Steve, you said if anyone wants to find out more about Big Dipper, they should check out your Facebook page. Yes, make sure you go to the correct Big Dipper, not the gay rapper from Chicago, but the indie rock band from Boston. Okay. There's like five Big Dipper nows. <laughs> you know, I've seen that on uh, on Spotify. Have you listened? How's how's the rapper? All right. Well, I look forward to coming back on the show sometime, Will. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Have a good one. Uh, see you all next time. Yep. All right. Bye. Good night.